Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Andy, uh, I guess that destroying the Enterprise is no longer a big deal for anyone in these trailers. That's what we've done. The pinnacle of Star Trek is... Who cares what we blow up? It's not going to be a surprise, so screw it. Well, okay. 
I mean, the Enterprise has blown up an awful lot. So I guess it, you're right. It hasn't become a thing anymore. That's right. I mean, after Star Trek three, when we blow it up the first time, uh, they blow it up again in <laughs> when's the next time it blows up. That one, that one stays pretty together until yeah it gets it gets shot at a lot but i don't think they blow it up again until um and then and then they get the a at the at the at the start of four or the end of three no the uh, no it's at the start of five i should know all this we've just watched them all we just watched all these movies wrath of khan the enterprise is fine at the end of that i mean it's pretty blown up but it's okay yeah it's 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 in star trek three Star Trek three, they do the whole swappy do thing yep, and then destroy and it. they destroy it in three. Then they have the war bird in yep. four and then they are gifted at the end, end of four. four. They're gifted the right. A and then yep. we see the B at the very beginning of generations before we're whisked off to join the gener- next generation crew with the D in the D which they destroy promptly in that movie promptly in generations yes. and we get the E. Yes. And they are given the E at the end of Generations. Uh, they they have the E in uh, First Contact, yeah. and it's fine. They, they they survive. They try to blow it up. That's, that's, that's the one right. where they try to blow it up, but they right. don't. They fail. They're tricking her. <laughs> so, so far now, by First Contact, they've only actually blown up the Enterprise twice. Right. Then we get to uh, Insurrection, yeah. and it they don't nope. blow it up. And then we get to Nemesis. And they ram it, and then they rebuild it. <laughs> but they don't actually blow it up. <laughs> Again, they try to blow it up, and they fail. They try a new technique to yes. blow it up. So the frequent, what we're saying is the frequency of attempts to destroy the Enterprise are it's going up. It's pretty high, yeah, it is. Even though they are not succeeding in doing I, so. I want to now, see the conversation. Now, I know they don't have currency in the star trek universe but it makes me think of aliens when when sigourney weaver uh, as ripley is sitting in front of the panel of corporate people who are talking about you know just blowing up a ship and how much it costs it's right. like you just blew up the ship right. they blew up the ship so now we get to the jj abrams uh era and in star trek they do not blow up the enterprise nope. uh <laughs> In uh, Into Darkness, the Enterprise again survives. No, correct. Right. They they make us think in the trailer that the Enterprise might blow up because it certainly starts uh, falling apart a little bit, but it does survive. It's the yeah. uh, it's the vengeance that the vengeance is the one that fails. and and then it's this movie that where the Enterprise dies. So you know, I guess to be fair, they really are only blowing up. No matter how hard they try, they really are only blowing up the Enterprise once per cast so far. <laughs> That's right. They figure each cast gets at least once. So I tried, I, I, I feel like I opened this conversation. I was deeply trying to take us down the road of, of absolutely lampooning the series for blowing up the Enterprise uh, in every movie. And it's really once per cast. And I feel like that's a little bit more fair. I should let that go. It's just each cast has had fewer and fewer films in which to do it. So, <laughs> so again, the frequency is going up. That's what it, it does, feels right, like to right. me. Yes. And, and really, I think Picard, that is, that is his thing. It's just like, screw it. I'm done. I've washed my hands of it. I'm going to try and blow up the ship. <laughs> that is what we, we get out of this whole lesson is Picard was the most ship blowing upest captain. Right. <laughs> he just wasn't very good at it. Yeah. He, he only <laughs> anyway. succeeded because he put Deanna in charge of the, <laughs> yeah. the film. 
<laughs> yeah, and he he only failed later because she got better. That, yeah, he didn't realize <laughs> that, that she'd been practicing. That is the truth. <laughs> uh, the secrets of the uh, Star Trek universe uh, revealed here. I so anyway, I, I guess it's not a big deal. They blow up a lot of big stuff, and especially maybe it's just because it's the the, the now we're in the JJ Kelvin universe that ev- all the explosions are giant. Uh, and so they just give it away in the trailer. But what, what I really can't believe more than anything else, Andy, more than anything, they gave up the Beastie Boys song in the trailer. That seemed like it was such a big surprise in the movie. Does it, though? They featured Beastie Boys in both of the movies so far. So it's almost like this is their thing. They're going to throw Beastie Boys into the into these movies now. These guys like classical music. <laughs> <laughs> I told you this was the that that's where the groan happens for uh-huh. me. Uh, and it's not the it's not the fact that they used Beastie Boys. It's the fact that they do the classical music joke. I hate that. Yeah, Ugh. I I Ugh. appreciate yeah. that they do the classical music joke because they're they're pointing out the fact that these people are basically like put it in modern context. They're like jamming out as they're getting ready to go into war. They're jamming out to like you know putting on some uh, some Beethoven or something. <laughs> fantastic i mean it's like right of the valkyries you know i mean it worked it worked it works in apocalypse now i guess you're right you're right i didn't even uh, i i hadn't even made that connection but you're right that makes it better so did this trailer work for you it does in in the in the sense of very modern trailers it works once you've seen the film and you realize like how much of the movie they really give away it's kind of gotten past the point where they show just all the big action moments. We see all the big action moments in this trailer, but not only that, they also are now giving away climaxes of said moments. Um, for example, right. the big um, midair grab and warp, or not grab and warp, but the grab and beam uh, that we have when uh, when Kirk rescues Jayla um, as they leap through the air off of his bike and everything, and they get uh, beamed out of there just in the nick of time that's that's like a great climactic moment to that whole thing and and it's revealed right there in the trailer along with the the witty punchline at the end of it so uh, it's frustrating that they're at this point where they're they're showing so much of of everything and really kind of ruining some some big moments yeah i think so too it's really frustrating for me um to watch some of this i mean i get it i i think the the lesson of of sort of the journey of star trek trailers that we have gotten for me at least is i'm so glad i'm not a professional trailer cutter because i understand it's got to be just a nightmare uh working between studios and editorial on the film to actually do something that meets all the needs it it feels like uh you know the the business requirements of trailer uh, of the you know the of the trailer uh is is absolutely in the way of the story and my heart goes out to these people because man it, it feels like they gave up some great surprises yeah absolutely is that music it's a good choice hey well played we got no ship How are we gonna get out of this one? We will find hope in the impossible. Well, at least I won't die alone. Well, that's just typical. 
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Bright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, director Justin Lin takes the helm of the third of the Trek reboots and the 13th in the series so far, Star Trek Beyond. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And while you're at it, we sure appreciate five-star reviews in iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help others to discover this show when they're searching for new podcasts they might enjoy. If you'd like to help us spread the word, kind reviews make for a great way to pay it forward. And on top of all that, if you enjoy this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. For as little as a dollar a month or $12 a year, you can join our back-channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being part of our listeners' choice episodes. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. And speaking of, Pete... Oh, Andy, speak of it. it uh, it's that time. It's it's time <laughs> to, uh, to do our listeners' choice drawing for our upcoming listeners' choice episode. Oh, dear. However will we choose? I did not dress appropriately, you, even after all of our planning. You forgot your silk pajamas, huh? I did. I'm wearing mine. It's, it's okay. I'm wearing two pair, actually. So I'm, I'm wearing a Outstanding. pair for you, too. I will be doing this selection in the nude. <laughs> and nobody <laughs> wanted to know that. <laughs> all right. Where do we begin? How do We're we start? Going to, do you uh, it's been a long I know, time. It has been a while. I, I think that you do a drum roll, and I put all the names into the hat. As as you, those tuning in may recall, anyone who wanted to be entered, uh, they they sent us a note over on Facebook or Twitter, and uh, we included them in the drawing. And then all of our Patreon supporters are entered in uh, an additional time for each dollar they are donating each month. So there you have it. Ah, outstanding. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Consider the drum roll now. And the winner is the Mel Bowie, one of our new Patreon supporters. No yeah, she's uh, oh, she's fantastic. won an entry to uh, to pick our next movie that we're going to talk about on our upcoming listeners' choice episode. Outstanding. Yeah, that's that, that's exciting. Well, I, it's going to be really. She's she's another one coming from Down Under. That's right. Congratulations, uh, the Mel Bowie. We will be in touch very soon. Looking forward to it. Shields up, ready. <laughs> Andy, this movie, I, I am, I'm a little bit tortured by this movie. Are you really? You know what I mean? No, I don't know. I Tell me. Because I feel like this movie suffers a thousand paper cuts. Uh, let me take it. Let me take you back to last week. You and I did a podcast last week on Star Trek Into Darkness. Correct. And we were we were not bullish about that movie. No, nope. certainly not as bullish as we thought we were. I went out to dinner with some friends. And uh, the uh, one of the members of the couple, it happens to be a listener of the show. I've, I've spoken of him before. Uh-huh. He surprised me because I didn't know he was a listener of the show. And he told me, he says, hey, you and me, we need to go out, just you and me, over a beer to talk about Star Trek Into Darkness. I, I said, really? He said, yeah. <laughs> he said, I watched it again. I watched this. I watched the, the movie again. And I said, yeah, and you, you've listened to the show? He said, yeah, and there was there was some of it, you were right, you were right, I agree with much of it, but I feel like you went really far over the ledge, and I need to pull you back, I need to pull you back, because 
I imagine what he's going to say is the movie is redeemed by the fact that it has a lot of fun going on in it and that fun should redeem the stuff that's just frustrating and aggravating for the likes of you and me. <laughs> I don't know how successful he's going to be there. This Let's cut to now. We're going to do a hard cut, smash cut to Star Trek Beyond this week, Andy. Okay. Time, time has passed. This movie suffers a thousand paper cuts because I feel like if I were to step out of my head a little bit, uh, then I would really hate this movie. But there is so much <laughs> just like color and flash and fun that I forgive probably more than the average Star Trek nerd would allow me to forgive. And certainly my inner Star Trek nerd suffers. For example, the teeny tiny dog aliens at the beginning that are... Uh, they they do the whole force perspective trick on us, mm-hmm. and they make them look very large. Those are called <laughs> teenaxians because they're teenax teenaxians, Andy. Because they're teeny. <laughs> I I I don't like that very much, but it's I have such a fun time <laughs> with the sequence that I am forced to laugh along with it and enjoy it, and and so uh, overall the film. Uh, I think its heart is in the right place and it is imbued with so much action. Now that I feel like the J.J. Kelvin timeline uh, has has officially settled in and it's shown me its, its true colors. And since I went in expecting that, I found I enjoyed the movie more than... Uh, more than i probably should i really really enjoy this movie and i have no qualms saying so (laughs) really i have there are so so many problems with this movie you're right it's it it, like this (laughs) i mean all of these films so far i mean if you really sit down and break them down there are problems left and right but i have as much fun watching this as i do the first star trek uh that jj abrams did i just think it's it's just a joy to watch and yes i mean there are so many (laughs) nonsensical uh, plot threads and plot holes and uh, logic issues and things like that all through it that when you really step back and think about it, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I have so much fun with this movie. I think, like you said, the heart's in the right place. The characters, I really enjoy the characters in this as they kind of separate and they each have their own little adventures. We get just a really nice blend of everything throughout this uh, that I just, I really kind of love this one. (laughs) I am relieved, even though I uh, I guess I feel more guilty about the fact that I enjoy this movie. I am so glad we're on the same page. <laughs> this uh, it's so close to to beating Star Trek as my favorite of these uh, of this this new trio of films. Um, you know, I, 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 I waver because I feel like Star Trek had so much love from me just because it was fresh and new and all of that. Um, who knows this might one day surpass it but it hasn't quite yet this film opens and our crew is deep into their five-year mission so this is you, you know as if this is a the the whole series was to be a prequel of the 60s star trek you know where they were on their five-year mission uh, this is the first time with this new crew that we actually get to see them there and for that reason alone, and we're going to talk more about this, uh, the the opening of the film uh, in our deep scene dive, but the for that reason alone, I adore the setup of this movie. I think that is absolutely perfectly well earned. And um, and I think as we as we 
explore all of the characters and their relationships and their little pairings as we uh, go throughout the the course of the film. Um, I, I think we see new sides of them. It is very even-handed. There is no, um, you know, uh, underwear modeling uh, in, in <laughs> right. the film. It is, it, it is just, you know, the character relationships, I think they actually had a really solid sense of where they wanted these people to be in the universe and how uh, they wanted them to contribute in new and inst- interesting ways. And I, I, I was really impressed with that. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's nice seeing them get separated into groups that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be split up into. You know, how you have Uhura separated with Sulu and the two of them. Right. I mean, what business do they have even speaking yeah, exactly. to one another? They're just... <laughs> Uh, and Chekhov and Kirk it's it I mean normally you'd put Bones or Spock with Kirk and then you could kind of separate from there but it's like all these little pairings that you're not quite used to and because of that uh, it just it made it feel fresh because you're finally getting to see some different interactions and some the way that people are working with each other I found that really exciting and then of course the introduction of Jayla when uh, when Scotty meets her um I just I found her such a fun and exciting and interesting character. Uh, I, I really just enjoyed everything that uh, that uh, Sophia Botella brought to that part and what the the writers brought to the writing of her. Um, it was just it was a fun character and it was a little different and and has her little quirks and everything. And it's one that I'm really excited about more so than Alice Eve who essentially was brought on at the very end of the last film like oh and and now you're going to be uh, a member of our crew welcome uh and then of course she's gone and not even a mention of her or the fact that possibly she's the mother of kirk's son at least in the other timeline it's like i I, i'm curious where that whole thing went but they clearly dropped it and brought in jayla instead very james bondian sort of uh, just swapping out of the females but i really am hoping like when we got to the end of this one i was like i was really hoping that that jayla ends up being kind of a new member of the crew i think that would be a fantastic addition Oh, I think so too. I think she'd be a lot of fun. It's it's a great character. It's a fantastic character design. Uh, the makeup is wonderful, and it made some for some delightful art design uh, in the marketing of the uh, of the film. Like it just really uh, hand to glove paid off uh, with with the way that character works in and beyond the film. Um, the The film was written uh, by Doug Jung and Simon Pegg co wrote the film. Simon Pegg plays Scotty. Can I get your uh, a judge's ruling on Star Trek Beyond's Scotty versus Scotty in the other two films? Well, it feels like <laughs> it feels like a film that Scotty wrote because it's like, hey, I'm going to put me into the into the fray with everybody else. I'm not just going to be hanging out with Deep Roy, uh, you know, uh, working in the engine room. We're actually going to be out in the field doing stuff with everyone else. And the fact that that he ends up paired with the uh, the cute alien, it, it, you know, it's like, okay, this is clearly something that uh, that he is writing because it, uh, it just feels like something where he's getting some moments, like other people get these big moments. He's getting this big moment where he, you know, he first hops out of his escape pod and it's on the edge of a cliff and he has to dive off and grab onto the cliff. Of course, it never shows us how he gets off that cliff, but somehow he does. But it's just like it—he really does turn into a much more heroic, uh, interesting character. 
let's just say I would like to see the feat of visual effects that ILM would have had to pull to make James Doohan make that jump. <laughs> he uh, could have done it back uh, in the but, 60s. Like that's that's when maybe, he would have been doing right. it. Yeah. He could have done it in the 60s. You're right. You're right. Simon Pegg, we'll see you in a couple <laughs> we'll of decades. See if you can, see if you right, can still exactly. pull that off. This is, as I like to say, of all of the Star Trek films, this is the Simon Peggiest. Uh, not only does he get the hero moments, he gets to mouth off to the captain too. You know, you don't, you, you have to write the film and write yourself into that kind of a moment when he starts saying, "Oh, Captain, she's she's lost a lot, Captain." Yeah. Whatever his she's line is, is too, he holds up right. his hand and she's lost people too, Captain. <laughs> He might as well have stuck his tongue out <laughs> on his way out the door. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, for me, I tune in to Simon Pegg uh, as the comic relief. And when he becomes the moral center of the the central relationship of our alien, uh, I uh, I struggle with that. It's, it's no longer the Scotty that is, you know, knocking his head on the, uh, on the I-beams on the, the, in the Jeffrey's tube. It's the, you know, this is this is the wrong character to carry that particular weight. And so this is one of my nits in the film that and it, and it's it's merely an issue of taste, I think, because I wasn't expecting it. I'm not adjusted to it. I really like Simon Pegg as Scotty in the first two movies and this one. He's a little bit too serious for me. There isn't enough of that levity. Um, some of that levity, the, the weight of the levity is picked up uh, even more robustly uh, by Bones and in the Bones and Spock uh, pairing that we get through the, the middle of the film, which I quite like. And that's another point of some consternation i should say constipation by great trek fans uh who find you know the injured spock's diluted laughing and crying as something way too far afield and uh bones um you know constant refrains of the original divorce kelly bones lines you know in a pig's eye Uh, you know, those sorts of things as being too much. What did you think of that? I can certainly see that. And and by the point we hit this film, where yet again, we have Bones saying, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a fill in the blank, uh, which he's done yeah. in all of JJ's movies far, so far. And I don't recall if, if Bones ever actually said that kind of standard line in any of the their films. I know it, it was said in the TV show, but I was like, gosh, did he actually say that in a, in a, uh, a film? I really couldn't remember. But just the fact that it happens so much here, I do feel like this is a point where the writers might be hitting a little bit too close to fan fiction. Um, and not enough of just kind of keeping the characters like finding their original core without having to just repeat lines from their original uh, characters. I don't need a doctor. Damn it. I am a doctor. That's the, in Star Trek. I'm a doctor, Jim. I'm busy. Star Trek. I'm a doctor, not a physicist. Star Trek. Uh, I'm a doctor, not a torpedo technician into darkness. I'm a doctor, not a beamed right. out in Star Trek Beyond. So yeah, he does it three times effectively in the first Star Trek and then once in each movie after that. But never um, never in any of the movies. What's even the as as Bones, uh, yeah. No, as it turns out not in any of the movies. But what's even funnier about that though is that and and this was this was actually the point I wanted to bring up that Bones, even though Bones doesn't say it as much, uh I'm a doctor nada is a refrain picked up by the other series as well. 
uh, Voyager, the the holographic doctor, says it all the time. I'm a doctor, not a voyeur. I'm a doctor, not a bartender. Uh, I'm a doctor, not a performer. I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. I'm a doctor, not a database. I mean, he says it all the time. I'm a doctor, not a dragon slayer. Come on. That's so funny. And Dr. Bashir in DS9 says it a handful of times as well. So this is, even though Bones doesn't take sort of, um, you know, he he did it in the original series, even though he doesn't say it in the movies, uh, as it turns out, it's definitely a Star Trekian refrain and alternate reality Bones is by far not the guiltiest of parties. That's interesting. I guess it's become a just a Star Trek trend to kind of, you know, it's it's one of those things where they kind of um, pay homage to the older uh, stories and then, but they do it so frequently, there are times where it does start feeling less like an homage and yeah. more like, you know, they're spoofing it. Um, and fun, fun slash funny lines like that easily can fall into that camp. Um, that's something that I do. I, I did start feeling like when that line came up in this one, I'm like, okay, they're they're getting close to hitting that point where it feels like fan fiction because they they keep uh, saying these same lines so often. Uh, and and I guess that's kind of the same thing, you know, as to what your point was as far as you know, are these characters kind of hitting that line? Are they kind of crossing it? And um, I, I guess I didn't have a problem with uh, Spock when he was, uh, you know, bleeding out and possibly dying. That didn't bug me so much. And maybe it was because, you know, an injured person sometimes has different reactions. And so I didn't have issues with that. But I can see why some people might, I guess. I don't know. I, I like the Spock and McCoy relationship developing in this film. I, I think there are some nice moments between the two of them. And I just, I I enjoy them having some time together to kind of build that. Even if there are things that might be happening that some people might have issues with. I I didn't, I just, I kind of enjoyed all of their scenes together. I did too. The thing I like the best about the, about the film and and I think the intention of the film, what they were trying to do is what, however well you think they did. What I, what I liked the most is that they planted this seed that goodwill is a weapon against the Federation, right? That the Federation has all these systems in place to detect anomalies and explore deep space and make friends and build this giant galactic uh, force for good that when somebody comes in and says, oh my goodness, you know, we need to rescue my crew, I need help, but she's a plant, they just believe her. Like their her goodwill or their goodwill uh, had them just absolutely taken advantage of and brutalized in a in a horrific way that is as much a celebration of of the exploration of roddenberry on this 50th anniversary uh film as it is a thumb in the eye uh, and i i i loved the the sort of the intention of the conflict that lies in in this direction well i thought it was certainly interesting after watching last week's film star trek into darkness where it was about an admiral who really was trying to start a war again because that's you know that conflict created uh, you know a betterment in society and everything and you essentially kind of have the same 
idea here with Crawl slash Edison as as he sees that as an opportunity to uh, you know to become a stronger, better person. I thought that was interesting. That it seems like this group, the 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 Abrams era. They've really focused on that as a way to kind of build these stories where, okay, we're going to go with this Roddenberry future. Um, The natural antagonist of that future are people who are naturally against it, who want to instigate wars. I actually didn't see it quite as much that way. For me, this film is much more the, the coal miners conundrum. We have a deeply entrenched industrial mechanic here and that is in in this case the military but if you look at the coal miners example that is a major energy complex that requires a lot of people to do the jobs and suddenly you know quite literally overnight uh, the entire fundamental business of coal and of steel and of uh, you know any of these uh, big fossil fuel industries changed and thanks to automation and changes in political will and cultural will they just changed and it created a a huge group of people that are just out of work for me that's what this movie is about this is not about an admiral who is completely in his right mind or i should say not necessarily his his right mind but he is aware of his faculties this is a guy who's job was taken out from under him and he feels betrayed by those very people who he feels used him and doesn't feel like the the future is the one that he was going to be a part of and so this is as much his sort of revenge story you know and 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 not as much a you know the federation has its is is willing to get blood on its hands story he's not the federation anymore and i think that's a that's a, a challenge i had with it is just i i don't think it's clear enough why he needed to be genetically altered to make this story an important one uh i mean he he was genetically altered just so he could live longer you know, right. live live long enough. See, I I wasn't. I, I don't think that was that was you know terribly clear. Like why why did he need to to be infused with the alien DNA uh, to actually make that work? Well, I you guess I saying? understood why he wanted like by infusing himself with the alien DNA, he would prolong his life. But of course, it made him have to uh, you know suck out the life force of other people essentially. But what it didn't clarify was why did that help him eventually get back to the Federation? Like, what was his end game there? Because at the end of his video, he talks about how, you know, but next time you see me, watch out or whatever he says. Um, you know, that's that's where it's not clear. I can understand maybe, okay, we got to get out of here. We're going to prolong our lives by using this alien DNA in the hopes that we'll be around long enough for them to come rescue us. But why is it all of a sudden turn into, okay, but now we're going to use this and, and attack you or something. I can understand like maybe if the alien DNA tainted their way of thinking and all of a sudden it changed their, their thoughts to much more warlike thoughts or something like that. But the fact that all of a sudden it's like, okay, he's, is he just angry at them now? And he's going to, you know, use the alien DNA to prolong his life so that he can figure something out. Um, but he's just going to be angrier or longer. I don't know. 
See, and I, I think you just described my challenge with it, which is that uh, it is not clear what his motivations are, like how he got to the point of of feeling that this was the direction he needed to take and this was his mindset. Like, I it, it, was he poisoned by the genetic uh, alteration? Is the genetic alteration what allowed him to control all the drones? Is it like there? I feel like there were a lot of holes in his relationship with this planet and what it allowed him to do, and whether or not he was just natural naturally um, vindictive at the change that was going on around him or that he was somehow poisoned by the treatment that he was undergoing that caused him to be more of an antagonist. It, it is. It's a, it's a problematic element of the story that, I, I mean, everything about Crawl and his, his need to get back to the Federation is frustrating because, okay, so first of all, he needs this this device that uh, from you know from this um, extinct natives that had ha- they'd had it here. He has one of them. The other one was tossed into space. Conveniently, it's you know now this artic- artifact that that Kirk ends up with after this opening. Very convenient, considering losing something in space is you know how are you ever going to find that again? It's it's awfully convenient, um, but it's something he needs to kind of unleash this bioweapon that will kind of destroy everything. Uh, you know his his logic, like okay, they can't get away, but somehow he gets this spy out um, who gets back to the Federation. Well, if they could have done that to begin with, why what why didn't he just go and and attacker you know there, there's a lot of these little elements that that are frustrating and I, I i guess i understand i mean he was trying to get a, a starship so that he could maybe get more people out of here but he's got this incredible like drone force like why can't they just fly out anyway they well i thought what the the what he really wanted was access to a starship so he could get all that information remember that's what uhura and and sulu yeah. find when they get into that communications relay is that he is actually you know he was using getting all that data on the Yorktown. Right. But he also sends the spy woman out to the Yorktown to get to get that shit. Right. So they already must have known about the Yorktown. See, yeah. this is it. A thousand yeah. paper cuts. Yeah, it's it's you really can't think too much about it because you're just going to kind of run into issues everywhere you turn. Well, and this is the part where I, I feel like I asked a, a question of you earlier, and uh, we approached the answer from the perspective of the narrative and not from, I think, the more important angle, which is uh, why did they need to disguise an actor like Idris Elba underneath all of that makeup? I, I feel like that's unfair to him and his performance, and I certainly didn't need it. I guess I didn't have a problem with it. I thought Crawl was a pretty cool looking alien. Um, I guess I can. And if he's genetically modified because of the alien DNA that he's incorporated into his body, sure. I was a little confused why they didn't just naturally speak English. Why are they just not, um, you know, why are they speaking this alien dialect? Like that was a strange thing for me. I don't know. I, I guess I can see your point. It just it, it obviously gives away the big reveal that we have at the end. Like if they landed and it was just him and a few members of his crew who had survived, would it be strange to anybody? Um, like when they discovered the Franklin, I feel like they'd go, oh, I bet I know who those people are. It's the it's the crew of the Franklin. And then suddenly you have the con story again, a genetically right, altered exactly. That's what it becomes. Know, humanoid creature. And so it doesn't take very long for this to be just, you know, 
the Wrath of Khan into Darkness Beyond. <laughs> that's good. We should rename it that way. We should have done it. Actually, that's a comic. It's a graphic novel. <laughs> it fills in a lot of holes. Oh, there are a lot to be filled. Everybody goes by yeah, Khan. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, so in any case, I, I think this is a movie with its heart in the right place, though there are a lot of, of sort of frustrating things. I do think it's cool that the, the um, you know, we were talking about the, the good using goodwill against the federation as its as its weapon and and i think the he he talks about that a lot right unity is not your um your gift it is your your strength it is your greatest weakness which which is a good angle and i think it's great that the it's the xenophobe warhawk right crawl who really he's the militaristic sort of um you know character who just wants to protect earth from these forces who believes that these alien forces should not live together uh should not commingle and he becomes an alien like that if if anything is the the defense of that genetic dna melding uh that he has to become an alien and yet he can't shake his own xenophobic tendencies that's pretty interesting yeah there are some very cool shots. You know, we talked about the death of the Enterprise. I th- first of all, I think the actual takedown of the Enterprise by, uh, Enterprise by these drones is magnificent. Oh, it's just, it's such an exhilarating open. And it happens so early, uh, not an open, but it happens so early in this particular film where you're like, wow, okay, that's that's where we're kicking this thing off, huh? We're going to start with pretty much the Enterprise being demolished and crash landing on a planet in pieces. Great stuff. Great stuff. And I think they did it with uh, an interesting amount of respect to what has come before. Uh, first, we actually, God, the sets, the demolishing of the sets, uh, the production design, uh, you know, the giant segments of this ship that were put on this huge rotating uh, uh, gimbals were just beautiful uh, to actually show, um, you know, these characters crawling on the walls and the ceilings in ways that we don't nor- normally see them. We, you know, we don't have J.J. Abrams shaking the camera here. Like they, they did some really great stuff, exhilarating stuff to pull these sets uh, apart. But it, it, to to then have to allow this enterprise a saucer separation mechanism, I think, is a great nod to the next generation, which has been, you know, exactly not respected in uh, so far in the the Abrams uh, lore. And the final shot during the death of the Enterprise where Kirk is staring out of his uh, escape pod and we just see his face in reflection as the saucer section is being torn apart and the rocks on the planet, I think, is one of the best single shots in the film. I loved it. Justin Lin uh, gives us a lot of unique uh, camera perspectives that I really enjoyed because it felt like he was just giving us something that we don't normally see. That was one of them because we pretty much join Kirk in his escape escape pod when he's on the bridge and we we eject with him as you know we leave the bridge and all of a sudden we're up above the saucer and we're looking down on that whole destruction that was fantastic likewise when the enterprise leaves the dock at uh at the yorktown and you're like on a gopro pretty much locked on like under the saucer section looking back at the ship as all of a sudden it goes whoosh and it just kind of whooshes out of the uh out of the dock i mean it's just like wow that was a really interesting perspective I've never seen before as, as it stays and everything else just whooshes past it uh, there. It happened all through this and it was really exciting that he was just playing around with that, giving us some new shots and new angles and new perspectives of, of things. 
I totally, I, I love your, the way you put that, the sort of GoPro angle. It, it really felt like that fixing cameras to things that n- normally don't have cameras affixed to them, I think is, <laughs> yeah. is a, a real sign of Justin Lin's kind of uh, visual aesthetic. I thought it was great. Um, the, uh, we also now have uh, Gay Track. That's right. Uh, which, which, you know, it, it feels sort of like about time. It feels about time, but what I found so interesting is that um, there was a, a mention that they made the decision of making Sulu gay as a nod to George Takai, who obviously since his time on Star Trek, he's become, uh, he came out and has become a very prominent LGBT uh, rights activist, um, very kind of popular in social media circles. Um and then he kind of disagreed with the decision because it wasn't ever Roddenberry's intention for the character of Sulu. I thought that was really interesting uh, that 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 kind of all played out that way. I mean, I think it's great, though, that uh, that they made Sulu gay. And I, I like that it's not a thing. It's just they, they land at the Yorktown and it just happens to be where his husband and daughter are living. I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I I think it's fantastic, and I, I can't... Uh, this is another one of those things where uh, just because Roddenberry didn't have it in his head uh, doesn't mean it's not right now. Um, and, and his husband, uh, Ben Sulu, uh, is played by Doug Jung, who is, you know, the co-writer of, of the film. Absolutely. I that was great. Yep. And love that, that Sulu has a daughter still. Like, they show him having a young daughter who... Hopefully, we'll end up uh, helmsman on another enterprise down the road. That's right. Uh, this film does definitively put to rest one of your greatest concerns about the entire series. We have seatbelts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. And I love that they look like Chewbacca's ammo belts. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Although I have to say, there were some things about the the USS Franklin that are frustrating to me, and this is one of them. Why is it that in this century, in the future, they are recording green monochrome video? <laughs> What's what is up with that? Like, wouldn't you just expect everything to be color, four K security cameras, everything? 8K. Everything's going to be 8K. 16K. It's all 16K. This whole introducing, you know, tape distortion, (laughs) signal distortion over that green monochrome thing. I've had enough of that. That's a really funny point. And you look at a lot of sci-fi films and find that they all do that. Like even in like in Aliens, you know, the little body cams that the soldiers have, they're like grainy as all get out and they're just almost useless. It's so funny that none of them record real high quality stuff. I think maybe Serenity, when we're watching that one, I think there were, were, uh, when they're looking at the video footage of the people on the planet um, that had become the the Reavers. Those, I think that was pretty high def, if not three-dimensional video. I, I think there are times where it either goes like really old school or really futuristic. And uh, rarely do you just see just nice quality uh, image as the actual like video logs. Totally. Like I, I feel like like people are messing up. Like we need to come up with something, Pete. That's like a video log app that you can get that records your own video logs, but it's always going to look like grainy bad footage. <laughs> see, that's interesting. Star Trek Discovery, they do. We do see some like FaceTime 
conversations between two characters on different ships and the, it's it's a very bizarre thing because it's like it's the typical headshot but just the face is like sticking out of the screen like half the face cut off at the ear <laughs> that's where the screen starts and the face is like this face mold that's sticking out of the screen so it's in 3d but it's in color and very crisp interesting very interesting yeah. and that's a prequel yeah. to all of this well, they realized, you know, when they lose money, it's like, you know, some of this technology doesn't matter so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It has to go. All right. Uh, so this film was shot not in Hollywood. No, yeah. This was the first one where they shot it almost all in uh, in Vancouver. Um, I'm sure it was uh, for tax incentive purposes. But I thought what was interesting is all of the sets and everything they built up in Vancouver um, I'm guessing all of the tree locations were probably shot around the area in uh, British Columbia. And all of the Yorktown sets were actually shot um, in Dubai because the the city had such a fascinating futuristic look that they're like, oh, this would be great to do as kind of the this really kind of futuristic um, spaceport. And I love that. I love the architecture. And just, I was like, this was really creative way to, to make something uh, work like that. So I, I think that they put to, to good use their variety of locations and sets. It's amazing that just how little they had to actually sort of redress Dubai to make it look like right. a futuristic space station. And if you look, if you have the, the latest Apple TV and you turn on the screensaver, uh, they do this beautiful, like I'm sure it was shot in it feels like it was shot in 8k but it's been downsampled to hd and 4k and it's this super super slow like beautiful aerial drone shot across uh, over that river and it is you are in the yorktown i mean it's amazing it's amazing when you stop to think about it just that that i i had not made that connection until i'm watching that movie and then the screensaver came on while I went up to go to the bathroom or something and you're in the Yorktown on the screensaver. It's amazing. That's hilarious. Let's uh, do you have any nerd questions, Andy? Well, I have one about the Yorktown speaking uh, of that particular um, area. Now, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but I I'm a little curious. Um, So Spock says uh, when they're talking about the Yorktown, that it's kind of this hub because they couldn't put it on earth because it might not seem fair to, or they couldn't put it on any particular planet because certain, certain races and species might, you know, take offense to that. But then why is Starfleet on earth then and not on some big space hub? That's a great question. I, I I know that this answer will show my ignorance, but it, because I don't know for sure, I really don't. Um, but did they ever say in the Kelvin timeline that Starfleet itself is on Earth in San Francisco, or did they only refer to it as Starfleet Academy? Uh, I don't know, because I, I guess that's a good question. Because we, well, I mean, is Admiral Marcus is he's not with the Academy, is he? No, you're right. He's at Star. They were at Starfleet headquarters. You're right. You're right. You're right. They did in the last movie. So yeah. I don't know. That seems uh, that seems unfair for Starfleet to be based on Earth. Um, unless this is like town is unless it's like the Earth hub, but then it still doesn't make any sense. Well, I don't know about that. Like it, it, it really is. It's Babylon Five, right? I mean, it's it is meant to be this giant like trading station in space yeah and so uh to have it on any one planet 
I, I mean, I guess I can see the logic rather than just repeat your question. I can see the logic um, and, and also to make it big enough to have enough other planets where it, or other species on it where it doesn't necessarily feel like the, the crew is visiting a planet which becomes a locus of uh, the story, right? It's not like they're visiting Kronos. They're visiting this thing floating in space that becomes a proxy for earth so that it's important when it is under threat but uh still feels like um it, it's not going to suck us into a new planet that has to have its own singular race and culture that we have to learn no it makes sense i, I guess it makes sense I, I just when when spock said that i'm like well that seems a little odd as far as starfleet then but i yeah. guess i guess it can kind of make sense to a certain degree well i think it's it, you know it, does it make sense enough for the <laughs> yeah for, to, to move the story along yeah this uh, is the valerian and the city questions about planets. crawl yeah, yeah. E- exactly exactly this yeah. is a and you know what a great comparison too because this is the virtual market marketplace right i mean this was that i I, uh, so adore uh the way they they played with the the mc escherness of the yorktown the way gravity works the way the ships are flying underneath the the rivers and uh it's just really really cool it was spectacular. It's such a, a creative design, not just the look of it, but I mean, they really thought about a lot of it and just like the way that the ships do port, uh, you know, they have their ports under it, like you were saying, but also how it, it deals with you. You really kind of go all the way up to the, the central point where gravity is a little wonky um, mm-hmm. as they're trying to, you know, as as crawl is trying to release this bioweapon. Um, it, it made it so fun that we kind of got to see the whole gamut and that final uh, class climactic battle up there where the gravity's all crazy and they're all flipping around and stuff. I mean, it's like, this was brilliant. I love the way they really put the Yorktown to use in this film. And it makes for a wonderful chase, you know, a, a setting for a great chase that not only, uh, you know, deals with the whole station under threat by the drones, but is a great venue for a spaceship chase and then becomes a great venue for a foot chase. Like all three of these chases make sense and are super fun. And it's like the amusement park of action scenes. <laughs> right. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah, exactly. And and speaking of the Yorktown and just kind of all the little elements of it, of course, with the whole gravity thing and everything, we do get Crawl getting sucked into space at the end of it. And I will say, J.J. and his people, they seem more so than any of the other groups making these films. They really love people getting sucked into space. We've had it happen in every single film. And I know oh, yeah. I know we had it a little bit in uh, Generations when, when uh, you know, the explosion goes off and some people get sucked out. But and theoretically i mean i guess they were going into the the nexus but theoretically that you know they the, all the people back in the past think that captain kirk that's how he died they think he was sucked into space I, there's really not much of people getting sucked into space but here it's all over the place aside from when the uh when uh crawl gets gets sucked out at the end i mean his ship like all those little the the hive i mean they're totally killing everybody totally and then when bones and spock beam into one of the drones they open the door and suck that the i guess he was a drone yeah uh, suck him out into space. it's just it's a lot of sucking into space yep this is uh, why you shouldn't work in space and this is why you really shouldn't be a passenger on any of these ships <laughs> that's right that's right that's right. That's why you should just you should just be happy right where you are right exactly. now. 
exactly have no aspirations oh so funny <laughs> Um, so this was the, what did you notice of, uh, this film that, that really helped to celebrate the 50 year mark? Anything that stood out for you? You know, there were a couple things. Well, one, uh, I thought it was really just a, a clever that as a part of the 50th anniversary, the makeup team, um, took it, took themselves to task to provide 50 new alien creatures that we'd never seen before in the Star Trek universe. I thought that was fun. And boy, you really feel it. I mean, I feel like there are aliens everywhere. And I guess to a certain extent, it makes sense because we're far away from Earth. We're out in the space station. But there's just a lot of aliens. And I had a great time seeing them all. And even Jeff uh, Bezos from Amazon is supposedly in there somewhere as an alien, which I think is pretty funny. I saw that in the behind the scenes. I saw him being made up and I didn't pause it. Like I need to do a, a screen grab so that I can compare it to the movie. Yeah, like figure out where he I is. I want to know where he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah I never I never found that. Uh, uh, so I also really loved having uh, the cast uh, doing the, the captain's pledge. I thought that was one of the best things, uh, just especially now closing out this whole series, all 13 films that we've looked at so far, we finally get like multiple people reading that line. And I love hearing each of them kind of just doing their part and everything. And I thought it was great having Uhura kind of finish it off. I just, I thought that was a nice finish to that whole thing. And, uh, you know, not to mention that this film marks the end of, uh, of two sort of eras. Uh, the first is obviously Leonard Nimoy had passed uh, and uh, Anton Yelchin had, had passed. And so to hear his voice in particular, oh, yeah. um, that we at least got to capture that, knowing that he's not going to be recast going forward. That you know, it's it, that that was the last of this wonderful character, and uh, uh, it it's neat that that we got it. I thought it was fantastic that uh, that um, yeah that he was there. It was it was so tragic uh, when he yeah. died, uh, like shortly after filming this, and uh, and and Nimoy as well. Although, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, Yelchin it was just such a tragic accident. Shock. Yeah, that's just, yeah. that was just awful. Um, uh, and, but I, uh, you know, going back to the, just the way that they close this out, I, I think it's such a, a fun and creative final shot also, where it's, it's that fantastic time-lapse shot of the Enterprise A, like the finishing touches all being built over who knows how many months, uh, you know, as it's kind of just that fantastic time-lapse getting built all the way to it, leaving the dock and flying, uh, warping out of there. Just a brilliant way to, uh, to do the last shot, not to mention, and I, this is kind of Star Trek geekiness. And I don't know, I, I don't recall all the stuff from all the original episodes, but I guess during the end credits, when you have all of the different um, landscape or spacescapes and stuff that you see over the credits, yeah. um, I guess a lot of those um, places that it goes through are uh, places where episodes had taken place, including one where it's like this giant green hand in space that somehow, I guess, ties into an episode, which I really don't remember that episode at all. Yeah, I can't uh, comment specifically on that yeah. one either, but I do know that that was like a that was an homage to the great locations, and it looks great. I mean, that's I think the closing credits are always a real showcase of these JJ era films. Yeah, fantastic stuff. I, I know we, we've sort of talked now about the the some other stuff, but I just one more point that you brought up that I can't let go of, <laughs> uh, and that is related to Crawl and his spaceship. 
Well, you know, it's just thinking about this. And, you know, we have Jayla who's hiding out in, in the uh, uh, USS Kelvin, and she's kind of got this invisibility cloaking device thing that she puts on it so nobody can find her. And so she can stay hidden all this time that she's been trapped on this planet. The thing that that my question is, this was um, Edison's ship. Edison became Crawl. How does Crawl not know where his spaceship crashed? That's a really good question, Andy. <laughs> That's a good one. It's one of the sh- the questions that I have never asked. Beca- and I think it's because I distract myself with the many other questions <laughs> sure. that, that we've also talked about. But this one, I think, is is one of the juiciest. He should know where his ship was. Yeah. And he has about a billion drones. Like, at a minimum, he can't, like, sick the drones on him to, yeah. to scour the place. Like, it, it, they, they can... They can get that close to the surface. To he could find the drone. He could find I, the ship. I think again. he could. I think his he lost could. ship. Yeah, it's too much. But again, it's one of those things that's like, yeah, I forgive it because it's it's enjoyable. If I think about yeah. it, it kind of irks me. But if yeah. I, if I don't, yeah. you know. So do you do you know how Justin Lin got on this film? I don't. I think this was one of those situations where they, um, you know, they were looking for a director. I think because J.J. backed out because of his commitments to Star Wars. And then I think Robert Orsi was set to direct it. And then I don't know if he just willingly is like, you know, I just don't think I'm ready for this. I'm not exactly sure why he stepped down or what happened there. But I know they went through a lot of options for other directors before they settled on Justin. And I'm sure it's like a lot of situations where a lot of directors um, kind of pitch their idea and what they would bring to it and everything. And and the producing team says, okay, uh, we're going to go with you. And that's my sense of probably what uh, what brought Justin to this. And I mean, he'd done some of the Fast and the Furious franchise films proved himself with some serious action and everything. So I think he had creds and I think he brought uh, brought that to the table. Well, I think that's the thing that that if, if that those who are critical of this film in particular tend to be critical about that. Like it's too much of a Fast and the Furious Star Trek uh, kind yeah. of a thing, but um, you know, I feel like it's it's actually really nice to see uh, you know, such a, a vibrant alternative vision in this universe. And I, I hope they continue to do that. Well, um, I think that uh, we've talked about that with this franchise is they have not held their directors down to really fit within the mold. Like you get that with the Marvel franchise films, or maybe we're starting to feel that might be happening with the star Wars franchise. This is a franchise where they seem to kind of let the directors kind of take things out and do it kind of their own way. And I think that's exciting because it gives you a lot more variety. And we've certainly seen that over the course of these 13 films. Um, I, Justin Lin beat out Edgar Wright, Rupert Wyatt, Morton Tildum, Daniel Espinosa, Duncan Jones. Those are some directors who also, I guess, had been vying for the position. And you know what? I'd love to see a Star Trek from any one of them. Yeah. And I feel like they would let them, like you'd be able to say, oh, that feels like an Edgar Wright uh, Star Trek film. I, I I like that. I It's interesting then that we're talking about Justin Lin as this incredible action director. And he, uh, he opens the film after the cold open with our deep scene dive, which ends up being so uh, modestly paced. It's a really nice uh, setup for, uh, you know, our crew. This is kind of, uh, it's it's this captain's log where uh, Kirk is kind of setting the stage for this, 
hey, we're in the middle of our five-year mission. Things are getting a little boring. It's starting to feel a little repetitive. I love that he says starting to feel a little episodic. Uh, I think that's a great nod to the TV show. Um, and it's it's just kind of this, I don't want to say boredom, but just repetitive nature of what they're doing. I think that's, uh, you know, I, I, I like that this deep scene dive, this sequence here really is uh, about the script. And it's really this kind of expository moment, just kind of setting up kind of the mental state of our characters at this period of time. And they put you in all the places that you just know are happening. It, it's, it, it, but you never get to see them. For example, you know, the, the deep scene dive starts right at, what did we say, 345? 355, yeah. 355, right in the beginning of the film, right after the the foreboding Teenaxian uh, exchange. <laughs> uh, so Kirk has just gotten back and uh, he tells Spock to put the uh, the alien device back in, in lockup, in storage. Then he starts his captain's log. Captain's log, stardate 2263.2. Today is our 966th day in deep space, little under three years into our five-year mission. The more time we spend out here, the harder it is to tell where one day ends and the next one begins. Things like, uh, you know, he'd ripped his shirt, so he needs to put a new shirt on. And he opens his closet, and from inside, the perspective of inside the closet, we see, in fact, yes, he does have 15 gold shirts, because <laughs> that's all he wears. Uh, I love I love that. We get to see, um, you know, we get to see them, uh, engineering crew, banging on stuff, which is, you know, delightful. Of course, they're going to bang on stuff that doesn't work to get it to work again. Uh, we get to see uh, characters making out, and we get to see Chekhov pushed out into the hallway uh, shirtless, which I think is such a wonderful uh, nod to, uh, you know, what your sure goes on after three years uh, on this spaceship. It can be a challenge to feel grounded when even gravity is artificial. But while we do what we can to make it feel like home. The crew, as always, continues to act admirably despite the rigors of our extended stay here in outer space and the personal sacrifices they have made. We continue to search for new life forms in order to establish firm diplomatic ties. Our extended time in uncharted territory has stretched the ship's mechanical capacities, but fortunately, our engineering department, led by Mr. Scott, is more than up to the job. The ship aside, prolonged cohabitation has definitely had effects on interpersonal dynamics. Some experiences for better and some for the worse. The the camera is I, I don't know, is it lazy? Is that the word I'm looking for? I wouldn't say lazy, but I'd say it, it's it's got a pace to it that that uh, allows for some breathing room. It's just it's it's a very casual camera, you know. It's it's like lumbering. It is a lumbering camera, and there's a lot of there's there's slightly slow motion throughout, uh, which which does you know deeply affect the pace of characters walking and interacting with consoles and things. Yeah, and it's 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 just done in a in a way where it just it fits so nicely with with his his uh, his log, 
and it makes it feel very much like it's uh, it's like recollections, you know. It's it's stuff that he sees all the time, and he's just thinking about it. And so the fact that you might have some that feels a little uh, slow mo, or or just the cameras drifting and stuff, it feels like memories, and it just feels like these are the things that the captain just kind of keeps, uh, you know, living day after day, and it just kind of is all blending together. Uh, cinematography is done by uh, Stephen Wyndham. He came over with Justin Lin from the Fast and the Furious franchise, um, and uh, this is it's certainly not all he's done. He's but he's very much an act, action uh, cinematographer, uh, including GI Joe uh, Retaliation, uh, and uh, let's see, he's done some horror, House of Wax, Anaconda, uh, The Hunt for the Blood Orchid. Um, Deep Blue Sea. Oh, you remember Deep Blue Sea, Andy? Oh, yeah. The Patriot. I know you yeah. do. The Patriot, absolutely. Firestorm. Um, and The Postman. Big fan <laughs> of The Postman. I know you've got that high on your list. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, um, he's he is definitely a guy uh, with the big action creds, and I think he acquits himself well in this film. I think he does a great job. And I also felt that uh, we saw so much of that drifting camera where the camera as it was moving was really on like a, on a, on a pendulum where it was like swinging uh, from like almost like vertical to horizontal. And, and I feel like uh, Wyndon really adopted that from Abrams camera and and, and brought it forward. Yeah, totally. Uh, Thomas Sanders did the production design on this one. He is uh, uh, another one that was not uh, a Star Trek uh, alum. Uh, but my goodness, uh, it just really fit. Everything looked tight. Yeah, and I know I know they built all new sets when they uh, built everything up in in Vancouver. Uh, I but I felt like even though the bridge has a different look, um, I felt like it it felt uh, you know honest enough to the the franchise and everything that I really didn't have any problems with it. I felt like they just did a really nice job of designing all of this. So I, I enjoyed and I really loved. Uh, I know this is is falling outside of our kind of uh, what we're looking at here, but I loved the the kind of the hive village that that crawl and his people were living in. Oh, absolutely. It was very cool and super organic and, uh, uh, yeah, everything looked just great. Um, You know, I I just really like the fact that the the production or the design changes in the ships in particular, uh, the Enterprise in particular, was well-earned because we know it had been retrofit. We saw it being retrofit in the last movie uh, rather than just, you know, oh, look, it's a new ship. Yeah, right. Uh, That that made me so mad in in the first part of the series. <laughs> oh, I know it did. I know it did. Uh, ILM did not work on this one. Um, uh, Barco Escape, Double Negative, Rodeo FX, Stereo D, Kelvin Optical, Atomic Fiction. Interesting. And and so that's a, that is a, a shift. But it's a shift that we've seen off and on throughout this franchise. It's nothing new. Yes. You know, ILM's been in and out, so... Well, and and a number of these uh, Kelvin Optical, Atomic Fiction, uh, Double Negative, they they have uh, actually been uh, working on uh, you know other pieces of the production that ILM didn't do uh, in past movies, but but it's just weird not to see ILM heavily represented. Um, it, I will say that you know I think the effects, the ships, they all looked uh, looked really good. The only effect I had a problem with, and I had a problem with it when I saw the film for the first time in IMAX, and not so much on the small screen. The beam in of the motorcycle in motion uh, is wonky to my eye. Huh? 
Interesting. And it's the first time I looked at it and I thought, wow, I feel like that thing's just sliding all over the place and shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but but uh, apart from that, uh, man, everything looked just great. I loved the the smoke that turns to that crystalline wall. Oh, I that's think that's great. so cool. Yeah. Um, uh, the beams were great. I mean, I just, uh, you've already mentioned the warp trails, fantastic. Like all of these signature uh, visual elements look just great. Yeah, great team. And and you, we only get a, a, a taste of it in this bit since mostly it's all set based. But yeah, we do right. start and end this scene with shots of the Enterprise. The first shot is just a, a really nice shot of it as we kind of, uh, as it goes under us or under the camera. And then the other one is that fantastic warp. Um, the team that did the Enterprise on this, uh, you already said it, but I mean, I just think they did a really nice job with uh, the detail of the Enterprise. Well, and you know, one of the things that we do see in this one, in this retrofit bridge, the consoles are awash with screens. They now have these incredibly bright, they used a lot more rear projection uh, behind the screen elements. So, um, you know, every surface is a moving screen and it's beautiful and crisp and huge and curved and organic and it's just great and i you know i think that's a that is a notable change uh in in this bridge versus uh, you know the the past two you just have this growing set of of in uh, like not cg um effects that are going on on stage it's just really practical projection elements that make the make the whole thing look much more alive not to mention like the big walls like the big glass walls that feel yeah. make it feel like really kind of going back to that submarine feel where you've got just kind of the light up walls uh, or light up glass that has a lot of information on it um, just kind of filling extra space i i just really loved the visual of it uh, I love the visual as much as I love the music of it, and I know you are. I, I know you have issues with uh, the repetitiveness, I guess, of the themes. But man, to my ear, this version of Giacchino's score is what he's been working toward the whole time. Uh, and this sequence for me is the most beautiful music cue in the film. Actually, I should say this, in the behind the scenes of Star Trek 2009, he plays the main theme, this main theme, but he plays it slowly on a piano as he's talking about writing the score in one of his features. And this film, in this sequence, that's what they go with, and it is amazing it is so beautiful and heart-wrenching and uh new it's something different for me that i think uh it it makes the sequence Well, it's a beautiful piece of music um, that that does fill it. You're right. I, I really love this score, um, and, and I love this particular track. But I will say my favorite track from this uh, score is the one uh, when they go to the Yorktown. It's pretty much the very next track uh, when they land. I think the Yorktown theme is just uh, just one of Giacchino's best uh, best tracks. It's just a really powerful piece.
the thing was edited by four people. Who knows how they broke that up? Uh, you know, the last two films were edited by two of J.J. Abrams' standby uh, editors. This one, uh, Greg Doria, Dylan Highsmith, Kelly Matsumoto, and Steven Sprung. Uh, no idea how they broke up editing duties on this, but um, and and no idea how we would get a sense for, um, you know, for editing uh, sentiment by this sequence in particular. Uh, but the film overall is quite tight. Yeah, I think some of these people probably came uh, from the Fast and Furious franchise. I know uh, Greg Dioria uh, did at least one Fast and Furious film. I'm guessing the other three uh, did. Yeah, Dylan Highsmith did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that's probably where they came from, um, coming from Justin Lin's circles. Yeah, but, uh, yeah right. I mean, they do. And this sequence, it, you know, paired with the kind of that, that uh, very kind of well-paced camera work i think the editing has nice cuts to it i mean it's it's faster cutting than i remembered like when i was going through it shot by shot it it actually is pretty uh quick some of the cuts um but they're done in a very uh kind of uh, just a passive way you know you cut from a close-up of the back of kirk's head as he's walking down a hallway um to a wide shot of the hallway as he's walking you're still following just as close um, or just just the same pace behind him, but it's just wider, so you can see kind of the space, and you see him passing a crew member, and then you cut back to the close up behind his head as he acknowledges the crew member. It's like the the pacing is is still very kind of slow and everything, and it works really well with the the pacing, but it is still cut really quickly. I thought that was really interesting. It's interesting how it can be cut quickly and still maintain that feeling of longing. Yes, uh, you know, you don't need that to to change the. Uh, the actual emotional resonance of the of the sequence uh, you you don't need to necessarily slow down your pace of cuts I think it's it's really great it, so this sequence Andy I think is a it's a terrific sequence that I think represents uh, the the heart of the film and even though the film picks up the pace uh, in terms of action and uh, you know shoot 'em ups uh, pretty quickly, from here on out, I, I think when I say that the film has its heart in the right place, uh, this is the scene that represents that. And, you know, it gives us an opportunity to see and hear a different Kirk than in the two films prior. He, he just sounds more mature and, dare I say, a little bit more shat. It's very much the older, wiser uh, Kirk, right? I mean, he's he's been at this for 966 days so far, and and not to mention, you know, the previous two uh, adventures on celluloid that we have. This is a really nice chance that we have to just kind of get a sense of him in this world of what is life like when you're basically just set out to explore new worlds for five years, and it's it's interesting to see kind of just where it puts him mentally. Now, we have already uh, dropped some of our uh, facts and tidbits. You know, Jeff Bezos is in the movie. That's a nice little fact and tidbit. I have a fact and tidbit uh, that uh, I really quite liked, and I know you have one too. I would like to share my fact and tidbit that his motorcycle, which I thought was a really nice touch. They found the motorcycle uh, on the bridge of the Franklin, which seemed (laughs) like such a very strange thing uh, to find on the bridge of the Franklin, but I think it it ends up they, they justify it they rationalize it well that this is a sort of an antique ship and and they need some sort of ground uh vehicle and and a motorcycle is just as 
uh, as logical as a dune buggy, I guess. <laughs> uh, and in this case, the motorcycle was referred to on set as the Hiltz PX70, uh, which they named such because that was the last name of Steve McQueen's character in The Great Escape. Uh, and uh, that's an, a nice, uh, according to Simon Pegg, that that's a nice irony. Uh, it is being used to get into a prison camp rather than to get out uh, on this film. So uh, the Hiltz PX-70, I thought that was that was quaint. It is very funny. I loved that little nod. Uh, yeah. My little tidbit that I thought was kind of funny is, is uh, Simon Pegg. Uh, said that Jayla, the character, was inspired by uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character in the film Winter Winter's Bone. Uh, he said we were trying to create this very independent character, but we didn't have a name for it, so we just called it Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone. That's a long name that he joked, so it started getting tiring. Always saying, "Well, Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone is fighting here," so then we started calling her Jayla, and then she became Jayla, which I think is very funny because <laughs> Jayla kind of became you know everybody's nickname for her. I think before before they uh, were using this lengthy nickname for her, but it's it's very funny that uh, that that's where it came from. And uh, I like that this character kind of spawned from Winter's Bone, which is another great film. That's cute. Uh, how did this film do, Andy, in award season? Well, it got two wins, uh, 27 other nominations. It was really uh, all about technical um, awards. Um, at the Oscars, it did get nominated for Best Achievement in Makeup and Hairstyling. Joel Harlow and Richard Alonzo were nominated, but they lost to Suicide Squad. Uh, you know, I mean... I guess I can see that. Uh, although after watching this again, I will say I was awfully impressed with the just the the variety that they had everywhere. Um, we've talked about the Saturn Awards on all of these, the Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Awards. It had uh, one, two, three, four nominations there. It did win for Best Makeup. And then the three other nominations were Best Science Fiction Film, it lost to Rogue One. Best Actor, Chris Pine, he lost to Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool. And Best Supporting Actor, Zachary Quinto, he lost to John Goodman in 10 Cloverfield Lane. A couple other um, award uh, nominations that I thought were just interesting to, as I was kind of going through, uh, you know, they're kind of more interesting than the usual critics awards and different uh, awards from different areas and stuff. There was the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Awards, um, which they won for Best Special Makeup Effects. The Kids' Choice Awards, which is the Blimp Award. I, I really loved these. Um, the, it was nominated for Favorite Villain, Idris Elba. He lost to Kevin Hart for The Secret Life of Pets. The fi- <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that bunny is so good. Yeah, it really was a great character. Oh. Um, the Favorite Butt Kicker, uh, Zoe Saldana, was nominated, but she lost to Chris Evans in Captain America Civil War. Um, I, oh, I thought that was an interesting one. And then this was a great award, the BFFs Award. <laughs> uh, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto were nominated for the BFFs Award. Uh, they lost, unfortunately, to Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart in Central Intelligence. That man, that movie was a snooze. They were robbed. Uh, they are totally the best BFFs. Yeah, I, I miss Central Intelligence, but... Um, you didn't miss I, anything. I didn't miss anything. Uh, and the last one that I was going to point out, which, you know, speaking of the Enterprise again, the Visual Effects Society Award, they were nominated for Outstanding Model in a Photo Reel or Animated Project, specifically 
specifically for the Enterprise. Uh, Dan Nicholson, Reese Salcom, Chris Elmer, and Andreas Maninka, Maninka um, were nominated, but they lost to Deepwater Horizon. So, which which was also amazing. It was pretty spectacular. That, that model of that Deepwater Horizon was gorgeous. Yeah, it really was. So, what do we know about what comes after this movie? It's you know, yeah, it's it's interesting because um, here we are at the end of this uh, run of movies. Um, the key players they were only contracted for two sequels, which now they've done. Um, JJ uh, has been tied up with Star Wars and uh, Mission Impossible Six, another Cloverfield film, everything else that he's working on. But he does actually have an untitled untitled sequel listed as being announced on IMDb. Uh, with uh, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, they've now signed on. I guess John Cho has signed on. And apparently Chris Hemsworth is uh, showing up as attached also. Um, I guess that um, the J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, we didn't even mention them. They were two writers who were actually brought on to originally write this film when it was just called Star Trek Thirteen. Um, they, I guess, uh, the people just weren't quite happy that the ideas weren't working for this particular film. And so they ended up uh, replacing them with Simon Pegg and Doug Jung. Um, yet here they are, uh, Payne and McKay are writing, at least at this point, the next Star Trek film. So we'll see how that all ends up playing out. But right now they have a tentative release date of June 21st, 2019. So, um, very curious to see uh, what happens with the franchise. But, you know, I'm curious if they're ever going to do a fr- like any more films like reboots of The Next Generation or are they going to bring, uh, uh, you know, Deep Space Nine or Discovery or any of these other um, Star Trek groups to film? I think that ship has sailed. I don't think we're going to see any more of the non-Kelvin timeline. Do you? Of the non-Kelvin timeline? I don't think so. But I I thought it would be interesting if they explored those stories in the Kelvin timeline. Like, what would the next generation world look like uh, in this timeline? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Would Picard have hair? (laughs) (laughs) That would be the best. Oh, man. Oh, that would be great. And they just meet up with him later in life. So he's just an older man who never went bald. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, how'd this do in the uh, in the box office? Well, Paramount gave Justin Lin and his team $185 million to make this movie, the second highest in the franchise. It opened July 22nd, 2016, opposite Lights Out and Ice Age Collision Course, and it easily took the number one spot in its first week. It only stayed in the top 10 for four weeks, though, but it still went on to make $158.8 million domestically and $184.6 million internationally, giving it a total gross of $343.5 million. That gives it an adjusted profit per finish minute of $1.3 million, putting it in eighth place on our list. When looking at the profit-to-cost ratio, it's actually in 10th place, just ahead of Insurrection and Nemesis. Hopefully, though, they will uh, you know, keep this franchise going as they do seem to be on a good track. So um, I hope I hope it keeps going. Oh, you know, uh, I do too, Andy. I I found myself really just pleased enough after this movie, pleased enough to want to see another one. So I'm going to see that trailer. It's going to hit and I'm going to, I just know I'm going to be giddy all over the place. (laughs) Uh, We are at a point now where I I think had we ended our series after, uh, you know, Into Darkness, I might have been a little bit dour. Yeah, uh, maybe. But I'm I'm definitely on an upswing here. I'm I am bullish for Star Trek. Bring me bring me another one. 
I'm in the same place. I really enjoyed revisiting all of these, and I found myself enjoying um, kind of almost all of them more than than I remembered, particularly the ones that I, I remembered not liking. I ended up liking almost all of them more than I had remembered. Absolutely. I think we should rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel or just swipe over in your show notes of your podcast app of choice and tap on the flickchart link there. That'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your rankings and see how it compares to ours. All right. First up, we have Star Trek Beyond or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <sighs> well, that's, that's again, it's a very difficult block. It really is. I, Very difficult. Uh, as fun as I have with Star Trek Beyond, um, it is Oh Brother. I feel like I have to go with Oh yeah. Brother. I do too. That's really wow. disappointing for me. Yeah, me too. I, it, you know, it, I guess lucky for Beyond that it didn't hit the Oh Brother block on my own flick chart rank. <laughs> yeah, right? All right, Star Trek Beyond or Christmas in July? Star Trek Beyond. Yeah, Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond or No. I'll say Star, Star Trek, Trek Beyond. Beyond. Yeah. yeah. Star Trek Beyond or A League of Their Own. Ooh. I am Star Trek Beyond. There's no crying in Star Trek. <laughs> I I really need to say A League of Their Own, but I'm totally okay letting you have it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's see how okay you are. No, I, I'm just going to let you have it. Oh, you are? I, I, I thought you were going to throw gonna, rock, paper, scissors. No, I'm going to say A League of Their Own, but I'm just going to give you Star Trek Beyond. Oh, okay. This one. Well, that was that was generous of you. Yeah. You're a gentleman. Uh, Star Trek Beyond or The Bank Job. Ah, oh, that's such a fun movie. Man, that was, yeah. Uh, I'm leaning towards Star Trek Beyond. I am too, actually. All right. All right. Star Trek Beyond or The Bad Seed. Star Trek Beyond, definitely. Star Trek Beyond, <laughs> Star Trek Beyond or Star Trek First Contact? Star Trek Beyond. Beyond for me. What do you think about that? That's a surprise in itself. Yeah, Star Trek Beyond or Fat City? I'll say Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond. That puts it at 162 out of 322, Pete. All right. That old brother block is vicious. Well, what it's done, Pete, is Star Trek Beyond is now immediately below Oh Brother. Oh, brother. <laughs> so what's going to happen now, depending on where future movies fall, Star Trek it's Beyond. It's the Beyond block. It might be the Beyond block. On the other side, we have the Hot Fuzz block. So it's, you know, it's it's some really good movies, like right in the middle here yeah. that, are, that are tricky to get wow. past. The Great Wall of Flickchart. <laughs> what is this? Uh, what what's it look to, does Beyond look like on your personal uh, flick chart. It was uh, when I first saw it, I gave it a three and a half. Uh, after rewatching it, I just had so much stinking fun with it. And even with the problems I have with it, um, I I feel like it's just it's such a joy to watch that I, I'm giving it four stars now. Uh, I I am also four stars, and this ended up at fifty five on my flick chart ranking out of nine ninety nine, and um, which you know technically I guess should be a four and a half star, but but it you know. The Idris Elba stuff I can't quite get over. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a solid four star and a like for sure. Uh, this was a lot of fun. It's a great way to to leave me wanting more. Yeah, that's exactly what it does here. It's just it's it's a fun film. Yes, it has t- 
tons of of story issues, but a lot of these Star Trek films have. Um, yeah. I just have a great time with this one, and it certainly is one that I will uh, really enjoy watching again down the road. And, you know, I want to throw in, because we we haven't talked about it, but in the show notes, there's a link to the Internet Movie Poster Archive, the IMPA Awards. And if you click over there, uh, you will see the posters for this movie, the art design, I think. We, we've been talking about this in Slack, about some just really stupidly designed posters that the art of poster design is is just gone and i would say that the character posters on star trek beyond are great i i think they're they're wonderful they have the the bright sort of warping uh start the federation logo the badge logo over the shoulders of all the individual characters those are fine but what's really great uh are the two examples of the japanese um uh, beyond posters they're beautiful they're just Lovely. Uh, and, you know, I, w- with no disrespect to the U.S. Uh, Enterprise Hero poster, which is also quite nice. And, I, you know, they went with the um, that blue and orange color field, and I think they did it, they did it artfully and well. Um, so uh, there's, there's a, some actual good stuff to look at in the poster design here. You know where else people can go to look at all those posters, Pete? <laughs> oh, my goodness, Andy, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You know what? I need to stop putting the IMPA links in or just add the your link in there. To Pinterest. I'm a terrible person. Just yes. So- Why haven't we been doing that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't even think about Pinterest anymore. And you spend yeah. so much time there. You go to Pinterest. I really only once a week <laughs> I actually open up Pinterest. But yeah, uh, they should go to Pinterest. <laughs> wow. You do a lot of work over there, even if it's once a week. That is a well-curated, I'm a terrible person and a terrible friend and partner. Andy. Just just tell them to go to the show notes, link in the show notes for Pinterest, and then it'll be fine. You should, you should go to the link in the show notes for Pinterest, which I will start putting there every week. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, it's been years since I've talked about Pinterest. Yeah. You, I can't believe you're you, still you even hacking go to away Pinterest. at it. You go every week to Pinterest and you post. Because I actually post the show. Yeah, I know. Oh, Andy, how do you put up with me? Uh. <laughs> Dear. Okay, well, here's the this is uh, this is your turn, Andy. We haven't had a chance to shake up this question in a long time. Where do we go from here? Oh, wow, that's a great question, Pete. Do you even remember how to it, talk about a movie that uh, doesn't involve stars or tracks? Yeah, right, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> this is exciting. We're going to uh, jump back down to South America uh, to uh, visit some films from uh, uh, Argentine actor Ricardo Darín um, that I think it's fair to say he was an actor that neither of us really uh, were familiar with. And it's only because one of our listeners over on Twitter, uh, I believe it's at Paleo, uh, recommended that we, uh, you know, throw in some, uh, you know, a series with, um, with, uh, Ricardo Doreen and actually look at some of his films. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to be kicking it off with his 2000 film, Nine Queens or Nueve Reinas, which was remade, uh, a few years after that into Criminal, um, which I have seen. I have not seen Nueve Reinas, which I'm looking forward to. And then we're going to be jumping over to 2001's The Son of the Bride. Uh, then we'll go to 2009, The Secret in Their Eyes, and end with 2014, Wild Tales. Outstanding. Yeah. It's going to be strange. 
It will be watching, it, watching movies that don't involve spaceships. I know it's going to be a, quite a shift, but uh, one that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, no kidding. Me too. Uh, back to basics uh, next week, which is good, Andy, because as you know, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Handy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. are some people who were not crazy about some things. There definitely were. It, it. I don't know if that surprises you at all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> would you? Uh, would you like to go first? Sure, I'll. I'll kick it off. I all have right. uh, one by J. Aaron Bellamy, who says, "Just one of many reasons not to see this movie." One, oh, I can't wait. One star. Immediately after a scene in which Scotty has been tasked with modifying a crashed ship's teleporter, Kirk and the alien are transported while speeding along on a motorcycle. This implies, of course, that they were speeding along when Scotty locked onto them, then transported them, where they materialized while driving, assumedly covered some of the distance in both locations for the time it took to complete the transfer. This makes no sense, even within the confines of this idiotic film, and it certainly doesn't make sense in all of Star Trek's countless descriptions of what a transporter can and can't do. Even worse, the scene looks terrible. Well, okay. There you go. Thousand paper cuts, Andy. (laughs) Thousand and one, Uh, Pete. Thousand and one. Uh, uh, Joe Pizzorno, ND, says uh, that uh, this movie was a huge disappointment. Uh, he says, I am a huge Star Trek fan, but this movie was a huge disappointment. This movie had a weak storyline, but much worse was the terrible, quote, science. One reason the original Star Trek was so good is that Gene Roddenberry, he was a family friend, uh, hired science fiction writers for many of the episodes. The stories were valid extrapolations of emerging science and innovative and even courageous dramatizations of the social issues of the day. Kudos to the actors for doing the best they could with a seriously flawed script. Friend of the family. Let me just drop Friend of in. the family. He does. He points out, I, yeah, the, he dropped it. His family's very important. Uh, you know, he's got some points. And and it there's, there's some truth to that. And if you go back to the genesis of the series, um, you know, the writers who were working on the show went places. If they hadn't already been places, you know what I mean? I'm saying places in all caps and quotes. Mm -hmm. They went places. uh, And, uh, you know, uh, time will tell where Doug Jung and Simon Pegg go if they go places. (laughs) Feels feels like they're on the road. I don't know. Yes, it does. (laughs) All right. I got to go places. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
if you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.